Before we jump in, just a word of caution that this episode contains traumatic events that might be disturbing to some in our audience. Please listen with discretion. Not unlike a lot of homes in the 1980s, when I was a kid, a lot of toys and gadgets passed through our house over the years. But there are only a few that I still remember with any real clarity. And of that elite group, there's only one that seems to pop up to the forefront of my memory on a regular basis. It was a tank. A robot tank. And on the top of this tank, there was a keypad of numbers. And by using this keypad to enter a succession of various coordinates, one could actually program this tank to move forward X amount of feet down the hallway, turn precisely 48 degrees to the left to avoid the dining room chair, then forward again for 8 feet into the kitchen, stop on a dime, spin a sharp 90 degrees, and finish the mission by firing off three successive laser shots with sound effects directly at the base of mom's legs as she was attempting to prepare for us a plate of cheese and crackers. When my parents were visiting recently, I was sharing with them this memory about being seven years old, playing with this tank in our house in Minneapolis, and not too far into it, my dad interrupted to alert me to the fact that this was, in fact, impossible, that he didn't buy that tank in Minneapolis. According to him, it wasn't until a couple of years later, when we had moved down to St. Louis, that he brought home that tank. Well, this really messed me up. Sure, when it comes down to it, this is a discrepancy of only a couple of years. Not a big deal in terms of time, but I had solid, vivid memories of playing with this tank in the hallways of our Minneapolis house. Like, unquestionably clear memories. Even now, I can close my eyes and see exactly what it looked like rolling from one room to the next in that house. That's the thing, though. When we think about our childhood, in our mind's eye, we're able to take a sequence of seemingly disparate memories and events, some crystal clear and some, admittedly, a little less distinct. And when stitched together, this collection of memories hopefully forms a cohesive and relatively reliable narrative. It's the story of our childhood, the first few chapters of our own unique epic tales, the foreshadowing of what's on the horizon, the foundation of the individuals we're likely to become. So when we realize that some of our memories are less accurate than we'd like to believe, it can be super disorienting. If this isn't true, then what else in our story have we remembered incorrectly or fabricated entirely? Knowing how jarring this can be when even small, seemingly inconsequential details of our narrative have been inadvertently misremembered, Imagine the impact if you were to learn not that the toy tank you played with when you were a kid was actually in that house and not this one, but rather that significant swaths of your childhood story were not accidentally confused, but fabricated. Pages of your story heavily redacted or removed completely. Entire chapters strategically replaced with pure fiction. Well... This seems to be the case for our storyteller today, Sam, who, after his parents divorced when he was seven, grew up as an only child raised by his single mother. That's the crazy thing about the, the, the brain is that I lived 
most of my young life and into my 20s thinking he didn't want me when I, the evidence is clear there was a five-year custody battle it's like what that doesn't line up my mother's telling me he doesn't care and we're still in legal battles like but in the mind she's just telling me that this whole time it's crazy and i literally was like 25 like telling someone this story i'm like you know that doesn't make sense does it like why was he doing that welcome i'm your host jason king and this is dad equals There are very few things in life that nearly every single person on earth has in common, and one of them is fatherhood. If you were a human being alive on this planet, your existence here is due to the fact that you had one parent who birthed you and another who played a role in making that possible. The universal commonalities, though, pretty much end there. Some of us had a great dad. Some had a terrible one, or maybe several. Some never met their father, and some just wish they never had. And still, some would give anything to have just one more day with theirs. Despite these facts, or maybe because of them, what today seems to be receiving more attention, discussion, debate, and scrutiny than at any other time in recent memory, is what exactly is fatherhood all about? What makes a good dad? What makes a bad one? What do we want and need and expect from dads today? The good news is this. While no one person has all the answers to these questions, together, we have all the information we need to shift us in the right direction. Whether they were present or absent, good, bad, or somewhere in between, each and every one of us has had an experience of fatherhood that inherently contains wisdom and insight that can help us to refine our expectations of the role of fatherhood today. What are we aiming for? And how do we get from here to there? Which brings us back to Sam and the story he's going to tell us today. The complicated and often tragic story of the relationship he had with his dad and how that relationship has influenced his approach to fatherhood now that he's raising two little ones of his own. In order to find the actual truth of Sam's story, though, We first have to go back to the beginning, to a small town in northeastern Canada in the early 80s, and it's here that Sam has begun to discover where the narrative of his own story was lost and ultimately rewritten. She had started to become pretty depressed, drinking heavily every night, and was just unhappy living up there. And... He had a sort of robust social life, you know, because he had his colleagues and his students and he was very intellectually stimulated. And on some night where there was a cocktail party, somebody basically judged my mother and what she said, something to the effect of like, and what do you do? And I guess it was just so triggering for my mother that she just felt so inadequate. And now that we've spent so much time talking about mothers and the resources that were not available. I mean, God, this is like early eighties. There's just nothing for a woman like that to, there was no one to turn to. There was nothing to like, she just felt alone in the world. And, you know, she did the best she could with what she had. And so that was very difficult for her. And I don't, I don't feel any, I don't feel any anger towards her, but she decides on a whim, I'm going to go look for a teaching job in Vermont. And I'm going to take Sam with me. 
we're going to go down to Vermont for an extended stay at one of those extended stay hotels. And I'm going to interview for a job down there. And I think we should build a house down in Vermont and you, you can come back and forth. Unsurprisingly, Jack was far from thrilled that Sam's mom had made this decision. But he also understood that things weren't exactly working well in the marriage, and something needed to give. Vermont was further away than he would have liked, but it was doable. Maybe with some time, it would actually work out for the best. I remember my father taking me on a drive before we left and giving me the pep talk. You're going to Vermont. Don't worry. I'm going to come down soon. I'm going to come join you guys in a little bit. I have to stay here to work but you're going to go on this trip and like giving me like a nice little pep talk. Jack was doing his best to make this transition as smooth and peaceful as possible for Sam. This was a new chapter and they were going to figure it out together. So that was the plan. What actually happened is she drove down to Vermont and her mother having outlived three husbands, they all left her all this wealth. So she flies up to Vermont and basically gives my mother an offer, which is come to Florida. I'll take care of you and support you financially. You can do whatever you want. I will pay for the divorce. You should leave Jack. So my mother does it without telling him. So the next thing he gets, and remember, this is like before cell phones and everything. It's just like, I mean, it is, it seems wild, but like she literally, we drove from Vermont to Boca Raton, Florida, and then evidently then issued him divorce papers. And that was the first he learned that she wasn't in Vermont looking for jobs. But Sam was just a kid. He was seven years old, now completely estranged from his father. And he never really heard the true story of how things went down. All he had to go on was the narrative that his mother had told him. The quote she said was that he said, take the kid and go. Not true. But I had to live with that my whole life thinking what father would ever do that? I mean, he may have said that in the middle of a fight, but meaning like, just go to Vermont, you know, just go to Vermont and look for a job. He may have said that, who knows? But like, now that I have children, I mean, it's just, it's 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 an outrageous premise. However, as a kid, I just had to sort of, like, believe that, right? As kids, we aren't developmentally equipped with the skills of critical thinking and deduction that might help us to identify big, gaping holes in a plotline or to recognize potentially false narratives. So, for better or worse, we just kind of have to accept that what we're told from adults is the truth. And when it's not, like in Sam's case, the ramifications can be devastating. And they can last a lifetime. Now, today, as a 44-year-old man, he recognizes now that she likely spent most of her adult life grappling with undiagnosed depression. And he can certainly understand what she must have been going through, feeling shame about the bargain she'd made with her mother in a desperate and vulnerable moment and the guilt for having to reckon with the effects that this would have for both Sam and his dad and their relationship together. She just made him into someone that was a unfeeling, unloving, unkind 
person who would never serve me in any way, who would never be, he made, she made him feel dangerous. In fact, because at one point he, he just came down to Florida unannounced and showed up at church. And I later learned it was like his last attempt to just like reason with how insane this had gotten. Right. And they like called the police, you know, this is like this wild scene. My mother's shaking uncontrollably in the parking lot. People are huddled around her and I'm just standing there like, what the fuck is going on? You know, and he found, he got me alone out in the hallway and here he comes. And I remember just being like shell shocked. Chaos at church. The police are called. Nothing really comes of this incident. His dad turns around, defeated, and drives himself back up to Nova Scotia. And life kind of returns back to normal, or whatever Sam had come to learn was normal since he and his mom arrived in Florida. Which is to say that Sam was kind of on his own with no one really looking out for him. Until one day, in a seemingly random turn of events, life deals Sam a rare but significant winning hand. The first kind of father figure that I cobbled together was this guy whose name was Marty Feldman. And he lived in my neighborhood. And I love this story that I'm about to tell you because this shit, we've laughed about it now. Like I, I, t- I spoke to him last year. It like, this doesn't happen now. But what happened was I was like riding my bike through the neighborhood. He was 28 years old, but he might as well have been 50, you know, to me. His roommate's dog like chased me down and he comes out like, I'm sorry, but he starts chatting with me and he's like, apparently he's a coach of a, you know, kid's soccer team. I've never played a stitch of soccer in my life. And he's like, do you want to join the team? And I'm like, I I don't know how to play soccer. He's like, meet me out here on this field tomorrow at four and we'll play like in the neighborhood. So this guy like teaches me how to play soccer and convinces my mother to let me go to this thing and then And then from there, he's my coach. But then from there, he becomes like my like friend. And he takes me to Dolphins football games. He takes me out to dinner. He had this like presence and he was like handsome and an attorney. And he'd gone to Berkeley and he was a huge sports fan. And I probably taxed him a lot in terms of just like really needing someone. Like I would just come over constantly. Like the it's sort of the Kramer Seinfeld. I was just in the house, like coming in, drinking out of the milk jug or something. But he really was someone that was, he was starting a business at the time that he still has. And I, I just think he was an incredibly powerful model for me at a time when I had nothing in that, in that degree. And he was cool, he was responsible, he was vulnerable, he was like a very thoughtful, um, I mean, I get teary just. Yeah, I mean, I think that dude like really kept me from probably going somewhere pretty bad uh, in big, if I look back, like that was a, that was a tough, tough time as a kid and he just he was there and he probably knew that on to some degree and it, he didn't ask to be that person but he just kind of it just fell into him you know into his lap what 
sorts of things would you talk about or would you share with him what you were going through and what you were feeling and would he do the same? I just, you know, Jason, when I think back of like, you know, there are those people who just seem to be able to mirror things back. They can feel what you're feeling in some way. They, they just are able to, you know, it's empathy, right? That's what we're talking about. And I think that he, you know, this is still the eighties and very early nineties. We're, we're definitely in a world with like pretty tough dudes or just kind of like emotionally closed off men by and large that that was the, the norm but here comes this guy and i don't know if it's how he grew up i don't know if it's like you know and i don't want to go out on a limb here but like the friends that i have that are jewish seem to have a far more kind of inviting you know it's there's always like people are yelling and laughing and shouting and you know but there's a lot more emotion being expressed in those environments in those homes than i had experienced and so i would just say that he just he would ask questions. We never were not talking about something. We were just never not talking. Now it could be light, it could be sports, but he definitely, you know, would express a lot about his father. He had a really difficult relationship with his father. Always wanted to be a family man, always wanted to like start a family and stuff. But anyway, he, he just, I remember feeling really safe and loved and just seen, you know? And then, in a flash, it was gone. Just as unceremoniously as they had arrived in Florida, Sam and his mom were leaving. And not only were they leaving, but Sam never got to say goodbye to Marty. Just recently, after years had passed since they'd last spoken, Sam actually reached out to Marty to ask him about his recollection of this time. So yeah, I reached out to him after I got some news about that time and I was like, do you know anything about this? And he had a few details, but he was like, this is news to me. I, but I do remember your exodus from Boca was extremely rapid. And I was forbidden to reach out to you by your mother and grandmother. Like it was just like a full stop. And they cut me out. His mom and grandma forbade Marty from reaching out to Sam. His first positive male role model and it just came to an abrupt halt no explanation no goodbyes and Sam was devastated as you can imagine but there was an upside they were moving to Chicago his mom got a new job a good job at a boarding school which gave Sam some reason to hope maybe things were getting better for him and his mom but this upswing didn't last long His mom's drinking was only escalating, and things were about to take a dramatic turn for the worse. I was living on this campus, and at home, I've got a a person who's literally like, I got to carry her to bed kind of thing. I, I don't really connect with a lot of the kids at the school. And so I wander into the schoolhouse a lot, and there's like these teachers who were hanging out there, including my own. And she was super friendly. And then she was like, we should go to a movie and we should go do this. And well, this escalated into, we should have sex. And we did. 12 years old. And here he is feeling isolated, confused and lonely. The new kid in a new school in a new city, 
trying to make friends while also taking care of his struggling mother. And here comes his teacher, who, instead of caring for him and providing a safe space for him, she seduces and abuses him. She left her husband and moved on campus. So I would sneak out of my bedroom on campus, go over, spend the night in her apartment on the campus, and then sneak back and climb back in my window before school started. That's, that's where things got by the end of the year. And my mother expressed a little concern at one point, but for the most part, just kind of let this carry on. Like, all right, she, you know, he did this with Marty. He's got a, you know, she's a teacher. Yeah, I don't think, I think it was totally out of her purview, but I also think that's because she was fucked up at the time. So I think like a, a good parent knows what's going on to some degree. Like, so that got really ugly, man. Miraculously, the school year ended and nobody had found out about what was going on between them. And Sam had actually realized that he no longer wanted this relationship to continue. He desperately wanted to get away. Away from his teacher, away from his mom. And with a stroke of good fortune, through the church he and his mom had been attending, Sam was given the opportunity to spend the entirety of the break at summer camp several states away. So I go away to summer camp and I get to be a kid. I get to have fun. Like I got to be a kid truly for like two months. And I think that might've been the first time I got to be my actual age. I like met cool counselors who played guitar and listened to the jerky boys or whatever. And we're having fun. And I am out of the, of the shadow of my mother who's this like truly dark person, like deeply troubled at the time. And I'm just having fun and I'm riding horses and I'm canoeing and I'm, you know, doing fart jokes. I mean, whatever it was, listening to music I'd never heard before. Like it was so impactful that I came home and I basically begged to go away to school. Cause I was just like, I'm out of here. You've got problems and I need to go. As it turns out, there was a boarding school associated with the church camp where he had spent the summer, and a bunch of the other campers and some of the counselors went there as well. This was all Sam could think about. This was his ticket out. But his mom? She wasn't having it. It was a non-starter. According to her, he wasn't going anywhere. But Sam needed this. He knew that he needed a fresh start and some place where he could reinvent himself. So, Sam played the only hand he had. He told her about what had been going on with his teacher. And he told her everything. And here's the kicker. They didn't do anything. They didn't press charges because, and I now know why, which is because she couldn't out she couldn't get involved in a legal another legal bat, battle cuz she had kidnapped me you heard that right remember when marty explained that their exodus had been so quick and his mom had caught off contact what sam didn't know at the time but that he has learned more recently through conversations with his dad's family members the reason they had left florida so quickly was that not long after the church incident his mom had been notified that the court had decided to grant 50-50 custody to Sam's dad. But she couldn't have that. 
not after all that she had said and after all that had happened. So she packed up everything they owned, and without telling a soul, they fled to Chicago. So now, when his mom learns of the abuse he's been subjected to by his teacher, there's nothing she could do about it. So that's why, she, so I, there was no punishment to this woman. They just, because we didn't press charges, nothing. She just, she just wandered off and lived a life of her own, remarried, etc. Because my mother couldn't put her name in any kind of legal document, she couldn't do anything. She was powerless to help me when I needed support. So I said, I'm going off to boarding school because I, I, it feels like I'm, out, I'm, I'm alone out here and I'm finding some fun with these crazy kids that they're, you know. So when you do things that make you powerless to support your children, that's a really impactful lesson of that. You know, the fact that she was a basket case and drunk, I mean, those are bad. That's all bad. But like the fact that when the, when the real shit came down, that her husband or her son was being sexually molested and she was powerless to like protect him. That's the, that's the worst thing you can do in parenting, you know, because then your, your child is just like, my parent was never there. They couldn't be there for me. And so Sam got what he wanted that fall. He packed up and again, under a veil of secrecy about what had happened to him, he headed off to start seventh grade at this new boarding school. But they knew the deal. They were like, he can't talk about it. Like, he cannot tell anybody. He cannot tell his friends. His house pop knows. And the principal knows. And, you know, like, the teachers know, but not many of them. And that was, that just dropped me in like it didn't happen. Didn't happen. <laughs> and then, however, I was thrilled. I was thrilled to be out of there, you know. I was pretty lost that first year, seventh grade. And, you know, the boys dorm, like when you're in middle school, they would do these little weird activities. Like Friday night, it's like, all right, let's take them down to the field house and just let them like play basketball and get some energy out or something. So it was just like, just letting loose like 12, 13 year old boys. So I went to the bathroom in the locker room and they left without me and shut off all the lights. And I couldn't find my way back like in the dark. I don't know where the lights are. It's like this sort of cavernous building. And I walked into a cement wall and, and I was enraged and I was enraged because I was obviously so scared in general. I was trying to get my footing at a new school. I was at a boarding school and I was mad. I felt really hurt and I was physically hurt. And I got back to the dorm and I was crying and I was screaming and I just was so deeply upset. Like it was like, it was all happening. Everything that had happened in Chicago, just like all this shit just seemed to just like it, I, like I redlined, you know, like I couldn't, it was too much for a little boy to handle. And I was mad at everyone there. I was like yelling at the other kids. So I put myself in my bedroom and Charles Harlow, the house pop, he came and he opened the door and this big Texas guy just says, I love you. That's all I needed to hear. It was crazy. Just like, I was like, you do? <laughs> like in my head. 
you and it's just like you realize like these kids just need to feel safe is one thing but also just like not flawed not broken they just need to feel okay and that someone sees them and cares and you know he apologized for what happened but he really just said I love you he said I love you Sam and that was the turning I would say that was like I would say that was a big turning point for me like my mother told me she loved me a million times but I didn't feel what I felt in that moment which was safe like I had a protector and that was a big turning point His mom moved nearby so he could live with her instead of at the dorm. He played varsity soccer and tennis, started a band, had some relationships, and by all accounts, he had an incredible high school experience. When he graduated, he and a buddy moved to Boulder, Colorado to go to college. He studied journalism. And this is a time in life when we're making moves, exploring what's possible in the future. And one day it occurs to Sam that I was born in Canada. Does that does that mean I could move there if I wanted to? Could I do that? Well, the best person to help him figure this out was his dad. His dad, who he hadn't spoken to for more than a decade since he and his mom left Florida. Or to be more specific, since she kidnapped him and they disappeared from his father. But remember, even at this point in college, Sam still doesn't know this. In fact, it's years before he'll hear anything about the kidnapping. So to Sam, all he knows is what his mother had told him, which is that his dad was a lowlife, that he didn't care about them, and that's why they lost contact. But nonetheless, he was intrigued by the notion that he might be a Canadian citizen. And so one random day in the early 2000s, after more than a decade since they'd last spoken, Sam found his dad's phone number, and gave him a call. So, you know, it's college. You're like shooting from the hip, like a real douchebag. I mean, the, the voicemail I left, to be fair, was a little like, what an asshole. So I get this guy's home phone number. I call, I leave a voice message. It's like, hey, dad, it's Sam. Or hey, pops, like super off the cuff. Thinking about getting a passport Canada. Wanted to see if you've got my birth certificate. You know, hope you're good. Hey, Pops. Wondering if you could dig up my birth certificate. Hope you're good. In Sam's defense, he's thinking he's being the bigger man here. Reaching out like it's no big deal. Hey, remember me, your son, the one you haven't spoken to in a decade? Well, I'm a man now, Dad. Let's let bygones be bygones. No big deal. Water under the bridge. But then? So... His daughter, who doesn't know I exist, gets the voicemail. That's right. When Sam's dad calls back, and it's not at all a warm conversation, he tells Sam that not only does he have a nine-year-old sister, but that she is the one who first heard Sam's voicemail. And that she still doesn't know Sam exists. His dad explained the voicemail away as some sort of practical joke from one of his students. So she still doesn't know she has a brother. But nonetheless, he says that he'll send the birth certificate, and then they hang up. And that's it. 
from Sam's perspective, there's no warmth, no curiosity, no follow-up call, no olive branch, no apologies. Just a return to silence. And whether it was the distraction of college or the scar tissue of emotional calluses, Sam doesn't think too much of it. At least, not until about five years later, when Sam calls his dad again, but this time to let him know that his mother had died. I think the hurt set in when my mother passed, which is obviously a difficult thing, full stop. And then when I reached out to tell him and and just didn't get any, like even then, couldn't get anything going, then I started to feel a little like, that hurts, you know, this is weird. Like she's gone, you have nothing to worry about. And so it, that's when I was like, this is weird. You know, this, this hurts. And so Sam decides it's time to get vulnerable. It's time to lay it on the line and see what happens. One more time, he takes a deep breath and calls his father. And I say, like, I don't understand why you don't want to pursue a relationship. Like, and he says, well, you told me to fuck off. You told me this is what you told me. And in an instant, it all comes rushing back. And I forgot this. So, oh, this is awful. So when, when he drove down that time and he found me at church and the reaction to that, my mother melting down, shaking in that parking lot, freaking out. I called his hotel and I left a voicemail at, I must have been 11, 10 or 11. And I said, get the fuck out of our lives. Fuck you. How dare you come down here and do that to me and my mother. I like, I, I, and I, my mother stood by while I did it. Now, as a 44 year old man, I was performing for my mother, but I said terrible things on this phone call. Like I used everything I'd learned in South Florida in every movie I shouldn't have been watching at a tender age. And I fucking threw it into that call that really destroyed him sam had forgotten that he had made that phone call that he had said all those terrible things so now at at least there's some context at least he has uh, some information to at least make sense of his father's seeming disinterest in reconnecting well you told me to fuck off you told me this is what you told me And I said, well, I was 10. But like in his mind, what I took from that call was like, my son feels this way. And he gave me all the agency of like a fully grown adult. But like I had none, really. I was so powerless then. I was just like a a vessel for my mother's rage towards him. Because I I was angry because I was scared for her. So she had yet again put that burden on me and I did it. And what that probably did really was like, that was it. That phone call to have your 11-year-old son just say these awful, unspeakable, swearing. Like, you'd just be like, well, he's, it's gone. You know, it's over. Which, on one hand, is kind of understandable. I can't imagine what that would do to a person, to be on the receiving end of that kind of anger from your own child. 
especially when considering that his dad had been totally blindsided by the whole thing, the divorce, the surprise exodus down to Florida. The contention there is, that's not enough for me. If, you know, any parent who's had a kid fall into addiction or whatever should be able to tell you, like, there's no, there's no end here. I will always be your dad. I will always be your parent. I will always be here. Now, you don't want to get sucked into some crazy addiction thing to use that example, but like you do, will, you will always be, your bed is always made for you when you come home. And he just didn't think like that. He just was like, nope, boom, it's over. And that was that. The phone call ended and they went their separate ways. Again, returning to silence. That is, at least, until a few years later when, after nearly two decades had passed since they had last seen each other face to face, Sam found himself on a road trip up in his father's neck of the woods. My mom's sister's son is the only family that I have that's of, of any note. So he's always been kind of around. And he used to go up and visit my mom and my dad long before I was born. And he had all these like beautiful memories of the times up there catching lobster and blah, 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 blah. So he wanted to go on a trip and kind of like revisit his childhood. And I was like, I'm down, let's do it. So we drove basically the perimeter of Nova Scotia and found the houses that my father had built. And, you know, it was a great trip. And I, you know, called, called my dad and was like, all right, motherfucker i'm in while you're on the trip yeah, really like, hey, on the I'm trip here? improvise just winging it and i did i kind of had this like fuck you man i'm in your goddamn town like we can do this so he met me in a in a park in the middle of halifax beautiful garden and he wouldn't tell me where he lived you know he, this man is still under some illusion that i'm coming for him you know or something like it he's so you know we meet up and i mean i couldn't believe it. i just see him crossing the street but still thin, you know, still smoking, like literally does the like sees me and just does the, like, here we go, you know, like throws it. And I was like, oh boy, this is, what is this? So then we, he walks me in and we sit down and he said that he said to his wife, what do you think he wants? And, and she, she was like, I don't know. Like, and I was like, dude, I'm not after money or anything. Like, what do you think is happening here? You know? I just want to know you like the mom is gone. We can put it to bed. So he kind of opened up and that was a rewarding visit because he was, he talked a lot about my mother's mother, my grandmother and what a sort of like, which I already knew. So somewhat villainous, you know, character. And then he told me about my mother, with the drinking. And so what, what happened there was I was like, aha, we have a shared experience. I was like, I know about that. I lived through, don't think it stopped when she left, it got worse. And so suddenly we had this like shared experience together of like what it was like to live with my mother and what she was going through. And that gave us something that finally gave us a little footing. Like it was like, okay, this means a lot. And I, I needed this, like I needed to, to feel something between us, you know, because he said to me, you know, the last, I don't know the, the Sam I know is nine. You know, I don't know who this person stands. That's I'll never forget that line. The Sam I know is nine. 
the person standing in front of me is, is just a man out in the world. The person standing in front of me is just a man out in the world. Whew. That stings. That one hit hard and understandably. To finally be sitting in front of your father after 20 years, to be sitting next to him, sharing stories, genuinely, sincerely, and honestly connecting. To be sitting next to him and to hear him say that, to him, you're just a man out in the world. That's a lot. But it's honest. It's real. I think that he was able to get some things off his chest and illuminate some of the story from from his side which was disorienting you know i mean it was it was like you know a lot of what i understood was not true and that's disorienting i mean when you're when your childhood is like being rewritten multiple times like even as recently as two years ago it's just like jesus christ man this is a lot to kind of process but i i i I left with a very positive feeling and i think that the the he was humanized for me for the first time since I was a kid, you know, like seeing my father as a vulnerable person who was hurt. It softened how frustrated I was that we didn't have a relationship because it just made him, you know, a real person. And, you know, later after he died, I was charged with the task of going through photos to put together for the, funeral and I found these photos of him with his now wife when they were dating in the house that I grew up in and they're like clearly a little drunk happy like I've never seen him smile like this and I was like wow look at that like what a happy man dating totally in love drinking beer you know I just never seen this version of him So, all in all, this reunion in the park in Halifax, it was undoubtedly a step forward, but also kind of the apex. They kept in touch a little more, an email here, a phone call there, but ultimately, nothing much more of it ever came. Several years went by like this, and then one day, out of the blue, Sam got a phone call from his stepmom. Sam's dad was sick, terminally ill with cancer. She invited Sam to fly up to Nova Scotia to say goodbye. So, you know, in somewhat cinematic fashion, I fly into this old town. And, you know, he's in pretty bad shape. His cancer had, like, gone to his brain, so he wasn't totally lucid. But when he saw me, he didn't know I was coming. She did this. She gave me this gift, which she felt very earnest about, and it was... That is a gift that, you know, I can never repay. But uh, he said, hello, sir, which is what he always said, called me. Which, who knows whether that's, I always viewed it as affectionate because I'm working with very little here. So I'm taking hello, sir, as as a great warming thing. And she gave, then she left the room. And then we had this sort of cinematic thing, which was the like, he asked if he did anything wrong. And I said, no. And then he just, you know, held my hand 
And that was pretty much the last day that he was super lucid. It was so true that that generation, man, it's just like, what are we doing at a fucking, you know, bedside waiting for this? Like I could have forgiven you or I could have assured you 25 years ago. But that's the way it played out. The next day, Sam drove three hours to pick up his sister to meet her for the first time, to bring her back to the hospital, to be there with their dad together. And then the next day we went in and all three of us, me, him, and my sister, and and her mother all were like sitting with him together, like holding his hand. And that was, you know, that's like, that was a pretty good send off, I think for him, because it was finally all his family that he'd made together. And so that was that. Surrounded for the first time ever by his wife and both of his children in the same room holding hands. It's hard to imagine a better or more beautiful way for his father to say goodbye. And so that's that, right? All the loose ends got tied up neatly and tidily? Well, no. No, not really. Like most things, it's much more complicated than that. I didn't get to really like mourn in the way that I wanted to mourn, which was that I was still pissed. But here are these two people who love him unconditionally and are, and have had a wonderful experience with him. And they've brought me in. And so I start doing this thing where I'm like not feeling what I want to feel, which is mad and hurt. You know, I don't, I don't love this guy, you know, like I love him in the sense of like the bigger sense, but I don't love him in the sense that like, I understand, but I'm still mad. And maybe someday I'll really forgive and I'll really get through it. But like in the short, and I just haven't allowed myself to kind of heal that. So that realization that I didn't get to do that myself, it was really powerful because I realized that I was bearing the burden of how they felt about him and trying to be excited that I was included finally. Like, soup, I'm finally in, and he's gone. When your father asked you that question, did I do anything wrong, and you said no, did you feel that at the time? And then in the aftermath, you thought, actually there are some things I'm pretty frustrated about in the moment I was fucking thrilled to say no that's that's the facts I just was so glad to be in the room you know when she called me she said this is my name is Medi I'm your father's wife do you remember me and I was like, yes, of course. And then she just burst into tears. So I was like, oh, fuck, he's dead. Like, that was the third. So we went back a step and was like, he's still alive. And she's inviting me to come see him. So I was like, this is like, I'm already into the bonus zone, really. Sorry to be so crude about it, but that's truly how it felt at that point. So to then be there bedside and have him just express any kind of vulnerability was amazing. And then for me to give him something, for me to give him something, 
felt wonderful. Um, you know, later, I, I, as I said, I'm a little frustrated that we have the, that these things happen every day where somebody is dying and expresses remorse for something that has been like ruinous to a relationship their entire lives. I suspect it happens all the time with sons and fathers. <laughs> and it's just a trad. It's really tragic. It's too bad. It, it just doesn't need to be this way. And I know that in general, there is a shift, a deep shift happening in parenting and in fathers where this isn't going to be the case as much anymore. And vulnerability will, will be turned into a strength and openness and being able to be present so that you won't have these stupid cinematic tragedies happening at every hospital. It's, you know, it, it's, it, it doesn't need to be that way. Sam is right. This is happening. In real time, this is happening. My life took an unexpected turn a couple years ago, and long story short, I reconnected with a friend from college, got married, became a father to three amazing humans who are now my kids, and I moved from Seattle, where I'd spent the majority of my adult life, to Norway, of all places, where my wife shares custody of our children with their father. Prior to this new chapter, though, I had spent several years supporting families as a birth and postpartum doula and a childbirth educator and full-time nanny in Seattle. And what I witnessed time after time again in family after family is that fathers today have a deep and enduring desire to show up for their kids in ways that weren't necessarily modeled for them when they were growing up. Too many of us are all too aware of the inevitable challenges and deficits that we face throughout life when we aren't properly equipped with the emotional tools to build, sustain, and nurture deep and meaningful relationships. Dads today are ready to do the hard work necessary to make sure that we can show up in these critical ways so that our our, our kids don't grow up with the same baggage that's been handed down from generation to generation. And Sam is one of these dads. Like so many of us, he didn't grow up with many examples of what it looks like and sounds like to be a strong, vulnerable, emotionally present man. But from the moment his daughter was born, he was determined to learn how to show up for her in these ways. I mean, I just just cried. You know, I caught her. I, I just had this child. And it was, you know, it was a girl, which also t- t- when we, we learned ahead of time and I just was convinced it was going to be a boy. And so I think there's a very intense, there's obviously connections with your children, period, but there's a very intense connection with a father and his daughter. And that just was immediate, like immediate. There was something really intense about it. And yeah, I just sobbed. You know, the most intense feeling during that time were, were two things. One was like, I remember witnessing Valerie's strength in a very unique way that I hadn't anticipated. Um, so I, I saw her, I obviously saw her giving birth, which was a whole, that's a whole subtext of power and strength, which is just beyond what, you know, any man can do. It's just the most single, singularly powerful thing to ever witness. And then the other thing was when I would go get Esme, the feeling of having such a tiny, 
this person is relying entirely on you was very impactful to just feel deeply responsible for something for the first time in my life where I had grown up with such a bizarre, unstable childhood that I never really, I just didn't give a shit. It just felt like, I don't care, man. Like there was so much of my life. It's like, I don't care because I've seen how bad it is. And it, like, who cares? Who cares if I pay this parking ticket? Who cares if the tax man comes? Who cares if you, you know, like I just, there's this thing in me because I saw, I saw like adults weren't good people. But then when you hand me a child and now I'm definitively responsible for this, that's when, that is a shift at that moment. That's that fathers, if they're not talking about it, I know they're feeling it because there's something there that kicks in, you know, and that's never gone away. That's like, you always have this child. And that to me was, was the most powerful thing of just holding her in the middle of the night. Considering the childhood that you had, I imagine that that was the most profound sense of permanence yeah that you had had yes period full stop it just was the moment of this is the only thing i've actually made <laughs> that's that i that belongs to me and i belong to it that was a tectonic shift i think you know and i think the joy that i found in it was the ability to relive especially as esme reached the age that i was when everything went bad I've really felt deeply connected to her since she turned seven, which is when things went bad for me. Yeah, you know, it's it's one thing to have the best dad and have that perfect example. Very few of us have it. But it's one thing to have that. And then when you become a dad, it's like, okay, I've got a map. I've got a compass. I know where to go and how to do this because I experienced it from the other side, right? I also think, and it, it sounds to me like because you've done the work that you've done and had the experiences that you've had, you also have a map, but it's it's not a map of what to do. It's what you needed. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good point. Does that resonate? Of course. That's super powerful. That's, I think that my map is like, for better or worse, I'm, I'm thinking about emotions and emotional mapping. And you're right. I've built a map on what I didn't have or how I felt. And when I'm looking at Esme or Hayes and I'm seeing something and I know they're expressing hurt or um, they're scared or their, their feelings are hurt. Cause like Esme got tattletailed on yesterday and she's like deeply wounded by it. Cause it was a friend of hers. And she's like really wounded by it because she feels betrayed. And it's like, okay, feel that for her. How can you help her feel about that is is really the map at that point so you're right there isn't there wasn't a dad who did something who made me feel like well that that was a good move i'll take a note and do that later in life um i think you just are working to feel it out with those emotions and try and determine what they need So from, from where you're sitting today, 
looking back at your childhood and your relationship with your father, the few things that you did get from that relationship and and the, the, the many things that you have regrets about or wish could have been different. Um, and, and, and now showing up with your kids. Uh, when, when you're on your way out, when you're on your deathbed and, and you've got your kids holding your hands, what is the life you wish for them? And, and what's the relationship you hope to have with them? I suppose if I, if I were to distill it, it's, it's a few of the things I've already talked about. I'll never want a child or really my friends either to feel like I'm judging them as opposed to that I'm just empathetic and love them and know that they're already going through something very difficult. So I want to be the person who you, I want to be the father you can call who's not going to make you feel worse about something you're already dreading, you know? That to me is just like the most important thing. I just want them to feel that they are, can be vulnerable and that their father will be vulnerable and thus they are okay, that there's nothing wrong with them. They don't need to feel shame. Most of my life, I felt like I lived in a lot of shame and that just sucks. It's corrosive, you know? So I guess when I'm sitting there, I want them to know that I was, I just love them unconditionally, which is a term we use a lot. But what that means is all those things I just said, but that, that's what that actually means, you know, because being loved unconditionally, like my mother loves me, that's not healthy. That's not healthy because I didn't feel safe. I know she loved me, but that's not, that's, you don't feel that love. So I hope that I can take that and turn it around into something stronger for them. You know, that moment where that house pop, Charles Harlow, made me feel like he had my back, that he was going to be there and that he loved me feeling safe that your parent like that they'll always leave the light on for you that they're just gonna be there you know i think that i just didn't have a lot of strong models growing up i just didn't have anyone that was strong so when you say the map is maybe the things that i know that i needed as a kid that i that were not there there was a deficit of strength there so strength i think can come in a lot of ways. Strength is simply just showing up and not being unemotional about it. Because I think strength, a lot of dads in the 70s probably thought they were being strong in the 80s and so on, but they weren't there, they weren't available. So I think what strength can mean is just like, what, what was strong about that moment was he said, I love you, which was emotional. And it was emotional availability. I love you, comma, Sam, in fact. Even adding Sam to it was like really powerful to me. So being vulnerable and strong at the same time is like, I, I think just like an incredible guiding way for, for a child to just feel safe. So what you're leading to is to make sure that a child feels safe being the flawed person they are. think that parents sometimes live under an illusion that they're supposed to be the perfect person for their kids and actually the strongest thing they can do is be is take responsibility be flawed 
show them that they make mistakes, but do it in a, a way that's sort of inspiring or is powerful. Because at the end of the day, if your parents are pretending that they have all the answers, that can get a little scary for a kid around 12, 13 years old. Like, okay, apparently I'm fucked up because everyone seems to know what they're doing. No, they don't. Every day they're, they're improvising. And so the sooner you let children know that it's okay, the better, I, I think. And that was a lesson I learned because I think if anyone had come along during that torrid childhood and said like, I blew this, I'm sorry, and just owned it, I think I would have been like, oh, okay, great, great, you know? The human condition is such an unbelievably overwrought piece of shit. And if you can make friends and have joy and laughter in this life, you're doing good. Being able to show up every day out in the world when it's coming at you in the face and just be like, yeah, I'm here for it, let's go, you know? because I'm going to squeeze out a little bit of joy out of this. What a pleasure. What a, what a gift. <laughs> what a gift. This is the end. Or at least a few days ago when I sent Sam the final cut of this episode for him to make sure all the details of his story were accurate and in line, I thought this was the end. It seems fitting, though, in a story about lost and rewritten narratives, that when I woke up the next morning and found waiting for me an audio message from Sam, when I pressed play, it became immediately apparent that I had been mistaken. The truth was that, as is often the case, the ending was still in the process of being written. So, when you wake up, I would like to tell you something. I've listened... I've listened to this, and it's so good. But I will say one thing that I'm worried about. In retrospect, I feel like to to validate what I say at the end, which is that we are all flawed and we must like empathize with people, is like you must know that I don't uh, like they're all characterized as villains in this, and I don't carry any ill will towards the characters in the story. The people that impacted my life, I don't want them to think that this is an axe to grind. I want them to know that I forgive all of them. All of them. We make mistakes. I, myself, have made terrible mistakes. I'm not mad at my mom. I'm not mad at my father. I'm not mad at that teacher. I'm not mad at anybody who came along and maybe screwed up. I, I just see them all as human beings who made mistakes and it made me understand that it's okay to be flawed. And I want to be a good person for my kids who will definitely make terrible mistakes. And I'll accept them and they'll know that. Because it's a big deal. Because forgiving all of them was best part of my life. Thanks so much to Sam for sharing your story with us, and thank you for listening. 
This was the very first episode I've produced for Dad Equals. So if you enjoyed it, please tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your family, send a link. And of course, I'm currently working hard to develop all new episodes. So if you've had an experience of fatherhood that you think might make a compelling story, or if you know of someone else who has, I'd genuinely love to hear about it. Shoot me an email at jason at dadequals.com or reach out to me in my DMs. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more stories of fatherhood here on Dad Equals.